0: Sox Weekly, the official weekly talk show covering all things White Sox baseball. Get the fireworks ready. White Sox Weekly on WLS AM 890.
1: And welcome in everybody to White Sox Weekly. I'm Steve Cashel in for Connor McKnight. Nice win for the White Sox last night. A come from behind 7-6 victory over the Kansas City Royals. And tonight it's game two of this three-game series. Head to the park for dollar hot dogs one last time this season. Take advantage of this unbeatable deal on September 27th as the White Sox take on the Los Angeles Angels at 7:10 p.m. Purchase tickets today by visiting whitesox.com or calling 866-SOX-GAME. Well, this past Wednesday, White Sox general manager Rick Hahn stopped by the WLS studios and spent an hour talking with Connor McKnight. So over the next hour, you will hear that conversation here on White Sox Weekly. And here is part one of that conversation.
2: We'll start with this. We were talking about this on the way up to, well, I, I guess a, a schedule of events first. We talked, Rick and I, in the back of the... The sound lounge here, and uh, between my questioning which Led Zeppelin album it was on the back wall and whether or not it had "Stairway" on it, uh, we decided that we're going to do a quick 10 minutes of Q&A with you guys since you made the shoot, since you made the trip all the way down here. So, if you have questions for Rick, um, feel free. You can, oh no, I can. That's, thank you so much. It's very nice of you. Uh, if you have questions for Rick, you know, start formulating those now. We'll hand out a microphone toward the end of the event. And uh, and you can fire those cues to the to the hot seat here. And exceptionally warm the seat dealing with it? I've had worse. Okay. We got time. We figure. got time. So our our season is coming to an end, Rick, and your manager, Ricky Renteria, just yesterday walked into the pregame press conference while all the White Sox beat reporters. He was, by all accounts, bouncing off the walls ready to get out there and work with his guys, ready to get out and teach those lessons. We are less than two weeks from the end of the season. To contrast that, I have not done laundry in two weeks, and I am currently using the broken-down box of a NuGlera sampler instead of a bath mat. So all I'm saying is I could, I could do something with the time. <laughs> On that spectrum, where are you at as we approach the end of this season and things to do on your inbox with the White Sox general manager's desk? I did laundry on the office. That's good. I'm I'm glad. I'm happy for you. That's what you're getting at. I'm happy for
0: you. You know, it's a quieter time right now, September. Obviously, we had a pretty frenetic pace going, starting with the winter meetings last year and, and obviously through the trade deadline and the draft and our international signing period. And then... It sort of hits this wall here, where there's no longer any trades as teams are setting their postseason rosters, and we basically have stripped down everything of short-term value, uh, and and sent it off to for the greater good of the long term. That for the last few weeks, I've just been sort of sitting back and watching the team play. We had a we had a couple of teams in our minor league system in Canapolis and Great Falls go on postseason runs. So I was out in Canapolis for a few days watching them and and sort of getting a little glimpse of the future. But right now, from a from a front office standpoint, we're getting ready for organizational meetings, which will take place starting next week. And then come October, we're going to put our plans, to, heads together, come up with a plan for this offseason or how we're going to execute this season's plan and uh, hopefully keep the ball moving here towards what we're ultimately shooting
2: for. How, how much of the offseason plan does exists now? And I'm, you guys are going to do some work on it and change things around. How, how much of it is what you thought it would be? 14 months ago, when you sat down in the winter meetings, as you were in that flight, you know, heading down there, knowing that you were going to set the White Sox on – that you had all – you and Kenny and Jerry had talked about sending the White Sox down an organization-changing path for the long-term future. You know, it's – we are essentially –
0: on pace of where we expected to be and i think it's because we had fairly aggressive aspirations in terms of what we wanted to accomplish we knew that something had to change we knew we had to commit fully to one direction and that obviously being uh the rebuild not the band uh and either way i mean a very talented great group to commit to the breakup uh, was <laughs> tough for me i don't know how you wore it but we're now down a rabbit hole i don't want to continue <laughs> down, <laughs> down connor uh <laughs> But we knew we were going to have to start with moving some very difficult decisions. Moving guys like Chris Sale or Adam Eaton or Jose Quintana is never easy. There was a great deal of. Uh pride within the organization, whether it was within our amateur scouting department for uh, taking a guy like Chris or our uh, pro scouting department for identifying guys like Quintana and, and Eaton, uh, all three of whom our front office signed to what is arguably favorable club favorable contracts, that when each one of these players had success, everyone from our scouts to our front office to our coaches felt a great deal of pride. And we knew moving players like that was going to hurt on some level but there was going to be reason to be excited about what was coming back through that door. And as we've gotten to the point now where, as I alluded to, we've made most of the major transactions along those lines, uh, we are very pleased with where things sit. Now, in terms of the off-season plan, we are probably, again, each of these off-seasons, last off-season, this off-season, and and the one coming 18-19, all sort of fit in to this grand plan. And unfortunately, at least for me, we are probably entering the most difficult phase. Because as much as it hurts to move a guy like Chris Sale or Adam Eaton or Quintana or Todd Frazier, any of the players that we let go, uh, we could see tangible benefits in terms of Aloy Jimenez or Yohan Mancata or Michael Kopech or whomever we acquired coming back in and how that fit to the overall ultimate goal of winning a championship. Now we're in the point of the uh, where the offseason is really going to be based upon player development. And a lot of what happens over the next... 12-ish months or so of this process is going to require a lot of patience. We're going to have to allow these players the time to develop. I'm sure uh, you heard from numerous callers, I will assume, on the postgame show about why isn't Moncada up, why isn't Giolito up, why isn't Lopez up, when each of them were excelling in AAA. I think now that we've seen how they've been able to acclimate themselves in Moncada, especially after early struggles, how they've been able to acclimate themselves in the big leagues, People sort of understand a little bit better why we were patient with these players, wanting to make sure they were fully equipped to succeed at that next level and to contribute at the major league level once they were called up, not just survive, but grow and adapt and become the championship caliber players they're capable of becoming. As many guys as we still have in this pipeline, far, far more than just the Moncada, Giolito, Lopez's that we've already brought up, It's going to require similar such patience, and people are going to want to see Michael Colpeck. People are going to want to see Eloy Jimenez. They're going to want to see Dane Dunning or whomever. Pick a pick a name. Uh, But we're going to have to exhibit that same level of patience here over the next 12 to 18 months, so that when they come, they can have similar such such success as these first three, and we can continue to move the entire organization
2: forward. So you've you've mentioned that phase one really is largely over. I mean, I you term the phases however you like, more or less, but. For fans, that changes, and we've talked about this some too. For fans, that changes the reticle, right? It changes exactly how fans get to watch for the future of this club. While there are certainly a number of prospects that got called up and a lot of good reasons to watch the future and, and development of White Sox baseball, what are the advice? What is? What would be your advice for how to watch some of these kids as they come up through the levels? Because. Watching for trades and, you know, following Ken Rosenthal on Twitter and, like, logging on to MLB.com and seeing that the White Sox are in talks with everyone in baseball is, I mean, that's a jolt of adrenaline for fans, and this will be, in a lot of ways, harder for you, like you mentioned, but for fans, a downshift. Do you have advice as to how to handle that?
0: No, it's a good question, because you're right. There is a bit of a jolt of adrenaline for, for myself, for the front office, for all of us associated with the club, as you... Are engaged in these talks and you're seeing how you're able to access certain level of talent that's going to help us over the long term. Uh, now, again, it's, it's going to be about player development. and It's going to be a little harder to uh, evaluate that, simply because, yes, you can all see the, the Instagram videos of Eloy Jimenez predicting he's going to get hit a home run and then going out and hitting a home run. He's the best. He's the best. And that gets everyone very excited, And as well it should be. But there's an element of player development that involves failure. And it's a little bit perverse in that uh, all of us who are White Sox fans in this room remember Gordon Beckham and Gordon Beckham's rapid ascent through the minors and rampant uh, ascent into the big leagues where he came in, I think, third for rookie of the year after being up only for four months. We also, unfortunately, all remember Gordon Beckham's struggles that came at the big league level because it was for the first time in his career he actually failed. And adjusting on the fly at the big leagues is the hardest thing to do. And for a guy like Beckham, I think one of the reasons that he struggled a little bit with the adjustment and, quite frankly, probably never really made it, was that he really wasn't equipped ever to having dealt with failure and having pulled himself out of the bowels of despair and the ability to show, I know how to survive. I'll get back to being the player I once was. It is much, much easier for these players. Inevitably, they're all going to fail at some point in the big leagues. It's a tough league. They make adjustments. <laughs> the best the best play there. Uh they have to be equipped with the tools to know, not only the tools to make adjustments on their own, but the self-confidence to know that they've been here before and they've gotten out of it before. So while people, there's some people within White Sox Nation who put it at Zach Collins's year this past year in Winston. Yeah, an interesting one. And uh, Zach was our first-round pick a year ago. He's, uh, by all reasonable projections, he's our catcher of the future. Uh, and catchers, as a, as a species, develop very oddly. Right. They have to worry about the defense. They have to worry about working with the pitching staff, and sometimes that costs them a little bit of offensive performance along the way. Zach still hit for power, still got on base, and made great, great strides in his defensive receiving and game calling. Overall, that's a successful year. His batting average was low, and for the first half of the season, he struck out a little bit more than anybody wanted. People look at that, and there's a natural reaction of, oh, wait, Zach Collins isn't developing the way everyone wants. He's not on pace to help us you know, in 2019 sure. or whenever you had him projected to be part of that lineup. The reality is, is part of player development is Zach Collins failing, and I'd much, much rather have that happen in the Carolina League because when it happens in Chicago, he's going to be equipped with the ability to pull himself out of it. So this is a long-winded way of saying the net, part of what a fan needs to – helping themselves understand is that all these guys are not going to linearly or develop along a linear pace where they all shoot up through the big leagues and never suffer any failure. That's number one. The ones that do might not be better off for it. They might have been better off for having a little bit of failure along the way. Now, again, I'm not going to sit up here and say every one of our prospects in, in Uh, the farm system that we've accumulated are all going to max out and hit the max of their ability. That's part of the reason we wanted volume. That's part of the reason we weren't going to take any half measures when we were making these trades. We had to get up to a critical mass of prospects and need to continue to add to that because inevitably the baseball gods are going to take a couple of them from us. They're going to get hurt. They're going to underperform. or God knows what's going to happen, and we're going to have to remove them from our plans. However, those that maybe suffer some temporary failures along the way
2: could well be better served for it. So let's go to the flip side of that spectrum then. If if the one side is prospects who inevitably will fail at some point, prospects who may be using a busted-down beer sampler as a bath mat, to the other side where, like Ricky Renteria, just have this boundless amount of enthusiasm and or, for purposes of this analogy, are prospects that haven't really quite failed because you do have two who, at least off the top of my head, haven't hit a whole lot of roadblocks so far. Michael Kopak has been having a absolutely phenomenal year through two levels. Um, and an aggressive promotion it was to bring him out of spring and throw him in Double A. Um, Aloy Jimenez, who was picked up in the Jose Quintana trade, one of the top prospects in baseball, and another reason why uh, the depth is impressive in the White Sox system, as is the top end, all he's done is hit. So... What have the White Sox learned, I suppose, whether it's via Gordon Beckham or just via other lessons, about prospects who do rocket through the, the minor leagues and do arrive with, you know, kind of this nuke feel? You know, we need to
0: completely understand the limitations of every player. And every player has limitations. There are going to be certain things they're not capable of doing. When people were clamoring for Moncada to either break camp with us or mm-hmm. come up April 20th or May 20th, the reason he didn't is because he had not checked every box we wanted him to check at the minor league level. There are certain things, and Moncada specifically, there was a few things with his right-handed swing, and there was also on the exchange on a double play an arm slot issue. Not the end of the world. Certainly things that he could have come up to Chicago and survived with an unnatural arm slot on a double play, or he could have continued to have a little bit of a hole in his right-handed swing. But... We wanted to take the time, and and frankly, knowing what kind of a season we were going to have at the big league level, we have the luxury of taking the time to make sure that they've answered every, checked every box, so to speak, that we have for them at the minor league level. Now, there's certain things that you can't replicate You can't in the minors. You can't replicate the speed of the game. You can't replicate the adjustments that pitchers make. You can't replicate the the nastiness of a breaking ball. So when Moncada came up, he was able to do, he was able to essentially master and you know, frankly, come close to going through the motions at AAA and still have success. When we brought him up, it was to challenge him at that next level. And he did struggle initially with breaking balls. And he's going to continue to struggle a little bit with breaking balls. But it was the kind of breaking ball, now that's giving him trouble, he couldn't see in Charlotte. So we, we wanted to do, with a guy like Moncada, or whether it's Jimenez or Kopech, Kopech needs to throw more change-ups. If, until he does that, he's not coming to Chicago. Once he starts doing that on a more regular basis and he's working that in, he's using the same arm motion and it's becoming a plus pitch for him, all right, maybe we'll test that with some big league hitters. But until he does it against minor league hitters, he's not coming. Uh, Jimenez it's a little tougher to – Poke a hole in his, but he <laughs> does have only about you know, 20 some odd games above the A ball level. So we're going to give him a little chance to continue to show he can dominate, and maybe they'll give me a little time to find a that's, flaw. Was, in that's, game.
3: Convenient. Uh, that's convenient. That's
0: convenient. But he's, he's going to take a little longer. But the uh, the, the overarching notion is we're going to have an objective goal sheet or a, uh, analysis of what a player is capable of doing. How much of that is, are they able to address at the minor league level? And once they've addressed all that, they're ready for promotion, but not until then. But again, that doesn't mean they're finished products. is not a finished product. Even with this hot streak, you know, got his OPS closer to 800, which is where you'd probably reasonably project it as a 22-year-old. He's not a finished product, and he's going to continue to be challenged at the big league level. He's going to continue to develop at the big league level. And then when this team's ready to win, we think he's going to be a stalwart in the middle of that lineup.
1: That's White Sox GM Rick Hahn with Connor McKnight. Sox fans, never too early to lock in a 2018 ticket package. Full and partial ticket plans are available. Take advantage of great benefits like discounted pricing and flexible payment plans. For more information, call 312-674-1000 or visit whitesox.com. And up next on White Sox Weekly, Part two of Connor's Talk with White Sox GM Rick Kahn. Stay with us, you're listening to White Sox Weekly here on WLS AM 890. And Steve Cashel back with you here on White Sox Weekly, filling in this week for Connor McKnight. Coming up, we're going to hear part two of Connor's Talk with White Sox General Manager. Rick Hahn, but it's down to a nine-game season for the White Sox tonight. Game two, Sox and Royals. It'll be Royals ace Danny Duffy going for the Kansas City Royals tonight, looking for his first victory against the White Sox this season. He is 0-3 with an 9.56 9.56 ERA against them in 2017. And Dylan Covey goes for the White Sox, making his 11th start of the season, looking for his first Major League victory. And Sox fans, join us as the White Sox take on the Los Angeles Angels for our final home game of the season. That's Thursday, September 28th. This Thursday at 7.10 p.m., the first 10,000 fans will receive a special fan-designed T-shirt presented by the Village of Bedford Park. Bring your business home to Bedford Park and win big. You can purchase your tickets today by visiting WhiteSox.com or calling 866-SOX-GAME. And following this weekend series against the Royals, the White Sox will conclude their home portion of their 2017 schedule with that four-game series against the Angels. And the White Sox conclude the season with a three-game series at Cleveland next weekend. So it's down to just the final nine games. The Sox come into tonight's action having won two straight games and eight of their last 13 in this final seven-game homestand of the season. Game number 154 tonight. So stay with us. More White Sox weekly as we continue our coverage here on WLS AM 890. Welcome back, everyone. White Sox Weekly. I'm Steve Cashel in for Connor McKnight this week. And MLB.com at bat is your number one mobile app for live White Sox baseball. Stay connected with a fully customized experience. Get White Sox home screen icons and app features as well as game day, live game video highlights, radio broadcast, statcast, news, and much more. Download MLB.com at bat today. Well... In our last uh, hour, we heard part one of Connor McKnight's interview with Sox GM Rick Hahn. Here is part two. You mentioned the boxes, right? We've got to check
2: boxes down in the minor leagues. You mentioned mostly baseball boxes, a hole in the right-handed swing, an arm slot here, there. You've talked a lot, um, I think it was about a month ago, sat down with some uh, beat reporters and talked a lot about also evaluating and making sure that you've got the right guys for this rebuild, the intangibles of building a clubhouse, of building chemistry, this stuff that is ethereal and doesn't fit into baseball reference, right? How have the ways that your front office evaluates those kind of things changed over the last couple of years? What What did we think then that we were wrong about? You know, how have we what, – what bubbles have we burst? Well, makeup is the toughest, which is essentially what you're, you're – the,
0: the, Simple word for what you're the, describing the is makeup, right? Make-up. Yeah, makeup On the 2080, how hard a guy's going to work, how much he's willing to make adjustments, how good of a leader he is, how good of a teammate he is, what he does off the field, how focused he is, all that stuff we throw in a bucket and call it makeup. That's the toughest thing to evaluate until you have a player. Our scouts, our amateur scouts, our pro scouts who go around the minor leagues are charged with trying to figure out as much as they can, but until you're sitting this close to a guy and seeing him pregame every day, seeing how he shows up in the clubhouse, seeing how he interacts, you don't know for sure.
2: When you say you have, do you mean, just for clarity's sake, at the 25-man roster level or just in the organization? In the organization.
0: organization. Jake Berger at Missouri State looks like a hell of a leader. His teammates love him. His coaches speak well of him. Coaches from other teams, the radio guy speaks well of him. You dig as deep as you can to get to know him. You You have an interview with him, but they're all polished and coached by then. Uh, get to know the family a little bit, what they're about, and you make an educated guess. These guys have been doing it for a long time, so they get pretty good at evaluating, you know, separating who's legit or who's not. Uh, We do view it as in order to succeed in Chicago, given the market, given White Sox fans, uh, you need to be someone who is not only totally committed to doing everything in your personal power, to win a championship, but you're also going to protect your teammates because on any on any given day, all 25 of you aren't going to be hitting on all cylinders, sure. and you have to be able to buy into our program and believe in our program and follow with Ricky and our coaches and fit into our culture, and help guys pull guys along who may not be able to do it for themselves that day. Uh, that's pretty touchy feely. That's you. That that comes with first having the raw ingredients, that raw makeup to want to be a winner and make the sacrifices it requires to be a winner. But then once you're in part of the organization, buying in to what we teach and how we want to play the game and the selfless approach to winning baseball. That's the stuff we can evaluate once we get you. And over the years, I wouldn't say as if we've missed on that, Necessarily, I go back to the '05 team with AJ Przinsky and, and Bobby Jenks, both of whom were, you know, left for dead for makeup reasons by other organizations, so to speak. Uh, and we were willing, based on the research we did, to take mm-hmm. a chance on them. So it wasn't a great chance; it was an easy chance based on what we dug up. Uh, and obviously, we don't win without either of those guys. Uh, you know, they're not all going to be Canerco in terms of sort of the stoic leader type. They're not all going to be the the. Pruszynski or Rowan sort of uh, hair on fire leader type, but they're all going to be ideally focused on the same singular goal and willing to make the selfless sacrifices required for the team to reach that goal.
2: Is Is trying to quantify that stuff a good idea or a bad idea? Is it, can you throw a Myers-Briggs test at an 18-year-old who's coming into the draft and figure out something about that guy? Because we've... Baseball's evaluated both talent and character for 150 years, and they've still found good players. I mean, even Ty Cobb, was he's kind of a jerk, but boy, can he hit the ball. That was a while ago. Are are new methods worthwhile? I'm not going to say no, uh, because
0: certainly want to continue to be open-minded to any sort of Advancements in any element of player evaluation, whether it's the ball-in-play stat-cast data or it's a psychological evaluation or test that you can provide a player. Uh, you know, it, it Bill LaJoy, who was a great scout and general manager for many years in mm-hmm. the 80s and, and was actually part of the Red Sox in 2004, like he was around for a long, long time, he used to evaluate makeup based on one question, where you ask a player, Where are you going to be in five years? And with sort of more, it seemed like the right answer to Bill was something along the lines of the more grandiose the proclamation from the player, the more he wanted them. I'm going to be an all star in this league. I'm going to be a household name in this league. I'm going to be part of a world championship team in this league. Whereas opposed to, well, you know, I hope to do what I can, you know, and we'll see how it it plays out. Was a guy he'd stay away from. So Bill had a lot of success using his one question in evaluating amateurs. Doesn't mean it was necessarily the right tack, but it does show that sometimes in simplicity in getting to know an individual, you can boil it down to uh, simply how he responds to a single question as opposed to an elaborate test. Now, the NFL and their wonderlick work and right. the stuff they swear by, and, and there's certainly other organizations that uh, have various profile checklists that they look for in interviews, mm-hmm. Ours isn't as simple as the LaJoy side
2: of things, but we do have a feel for what we're looking for, and we sort of know it when we see it. Let's talk a little bit about the clubhouse chemistry that the White Sox have right now. Ricky Renneria has obviously set a lot of things down for these guys. I was in the clubhouse the other day, and uh, Aaron Bummer, who was one of the more recent call-ups for the White Sox, pitching out of the bullpen from the left side, he and Mike Pelfrey, who is 35 years old, has been around the league forever, both of them were glued to individually a video game that they, the entire bullpen has been playing. I mean, they are consumed by this thing. And it looks really cool. I kind of want it myself. Uh, but you've got a 35-year-old and a 23-year-old, both of them bonding over something that baseball teams haven't bonded by before, right? I mean, we didn't have a Nintendo Switch in the clubhouse. How, how have players changed since you came into working in baseball? And has it been beneficial to, to kind of grow up yourself kind of with players as they've evolved some? Well, keep in mind, I
0: started as an agent, so right. I used to see behind the curtain of what was really going on. They didn't, I didn't get to see, now I'm on management side, right, I right. get to see the Nintendo Switch side of the action. Uh, but no, in reality, I think a lot has changed with how players behave and what they get themselves into based on social media. Now you make one mistake out in a bar or get seen where you shouldn't be, and you're pretty much put on blast around yeah. around social media. Uh, now, we've also have gotten closer to a group of guys who – are frankly a little more interested. When we get to a city, we get off the bus at the hotel, and they go upstairs and they play online games against each other out of their rooms, which yes, I'm perfectly do. fine with. I don't. I don't need everybody seen in a church window on Sunday right, morning. But right. if they're going to stay in it and I'm around the road and play video games, that's fine with me. Uh, it makes for a little better performance the next day. Sure. Uh, so that I think. I think the advent of social media and and. Uh, uh, camera phones and everything has changed player behavior to an extent uh, I do think you know Ricky you, you, you talk to our cl- house culture and you talk about guys like Bummer and Pelfrey getting along and working with each other and having fun together. That's been probably the biggest concern I've had and part of why Ricky and his coaching staff have, in my opinion, done such a fantastic job is I don't, I don't even know the number of how many players we've had up this year. I mean, it's got to be 50 something based on the number of trades we've made and the injuries. That's really difficult to convey, to, to continue to have a unified clubhouse because there's so many new faces. Uh, and Frankly, we're a team that's rebuilding. We're a team that's that uh, hasn't been in contention much after the first couple of weeks of the season. Many of the players in the clubhouse knew that my name might come up on their caller ID any given night right. and tell them they've been traded. That's a tough environment for any staff to keep a team focused on that night's game. And you've seen – we were talking back there how many games you've seen personally already this year. I don't think – you you can probably count on one hand those games where it seems like we weren't all there on every given night, that they sure. weren't battling as late and as hard as they could. Yeah, we got blown out a few times. But in terms of battling night in, night out, that is the kind of environment we want and the kind of approach we want regardless of who's in the 25 uniforms. And that – culture, the one that Ricky and the coaches have managed to create this year despite the turnover, despite the challenges of the turnover, that's the kind of thing that's going to endure. And that's the kind of thing that's going to really benefit us once we've got the right core together and they've grown as White Sox.
2: I think uh, one of the things that amazes me most about baseball as it's played right now and as it kind of exists is the bilingual nature of it. Uh, The fact that you've got a manager in Ricky Renteria who is fluent in both English and Spanish I think is kind of an invaluable, incalculable kind of thing. Um, A number of the guys who primarily speak English or grew up with English as their first language have mentioned that Jose Abreu is becoming more and more vocals, probably the right word, in both languages. How important is it to have a clubhouse that, for lack of a better word, can transition through languages like that? Is it necessarily a bad thing that you have – uh, that that you may have teams hypothetically where you know Hispanic players are kind of in this corner and English guys are in another English speaking guys or you know English men if you have a couple of those on the team <laughs> cricketers <laughs> that you've migrated into the league but I I mean it's it seems like a huge piece of baseball that you know doesn't show up in in box scores at any point I think it's a huge benefit to us
0: and it's part of the reason Ricky's in the position he is is his ability to Cross over and teach in, in not just in multiple languages, but the ability to connect. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of Mexican descent, having grown up in primarily a Mexican area in Los Angeles, and come to the big leagues. Uh, through the draft, he's experienced just about every element of what a player ascending to the big leagues was able to ex- has experiences these days. Uh, he's also spent a great deal of time in the minor leagues and coached at every level there. As has every member of our coaching staff, so there's this level of empathy that comes and understanding that comes with these what, what these players have gone through. I don't think that teams that perhaps lack that mm-hmm. are at a disadvantage, per se. I don't think that it's an insurmountable hurdle that's going to prevent them from winning, but I know our uh, Ricky's ability to communicate across cultures and our coaches' ability to teach across cultures helps maximize what we're getting out of our guys and it is, is a true asset to us and will serve us well in the long run. Uh, That's at the coaching level and is at the player level. Jose wants to be a leader. Jose knows that part of what's slowing him down is his inability to communicate with a portion of the roster. He's worked hard to learn English. Uh, I will say that probably uh, for those outside the clubhouse or didn't have access to behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. it may come as a bit of a surprise, but Melky Cabrera was probably the biggest leader in that clubhouse. He's got a tremendous personality. He talked to everybody, English, Spanish, whatever, Uh, and was a great joy to be around. So it's not always the ones you expect. It's not necessarily always the biggest name player, the most productive player. Uh, There certainly is a need, though, for those types of players who are willing to follow the tone set by the manager and the coaching staff and sort of build off that culture across cultural divides. Let's
2: talk a little bit about Jose's season. He's uh, been as hot as you could possibly ask for right now. I wrote down a couple of numbers. This is where Jose ranks amongst AL first basemen, uh, so far in average he's third and hits he's second you probably know all these in runs he's first doubles he's first triples he's first home runs he's fourth rbis he's first weighted runs created first weighted on base average third ops first if you missed into the alphabet soup you certainly caught the numbers he's very 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 good. good what do you what do you do with a guy like Jose at the age he's at with the contract status he's got Knowing that you 've got a roster that 's very much in transition, how, how does that man fit into the future of the White sox? It, it seems he could be a, very much a linchpin, and one, one element you left off,
0: not just the numbers but when you 're that mis- talking no, no no when you 're talking his attributes is the role he plays in that club yeah. yes, as you, you mentioned earlier uh, there certainly is a very not just because he picked him up at the airport and helped him order his bats, but those are two examples of the impact that Abreu is having on Moncada. Right. There is a real effect that he has. His professionalism, his approach to the game, uh, what he feels is important as a player, uh, mirrors a lot of what we feel is important to be a White Sox. There's real value to that. You can't quantify it, but there's real value. At the same time, there's also objective facts that he's under control for two more years, 18 and 19, unless we sign him to an extension. Uh, after the 19 season, or the 2020 season, I believe he'll play at age 33, uh, which traditionally, especially for right-handed first basemen, tends not to be part of the prime mm-hmm. anymore. It tends to be more towards the downside of a player's career. We have to make the assessment, all things considered, the, the, the weight his runs created to the impact he has on Moncada. Uh, are we better off in terms of when our window realistically opens, whether it's 19 or 20, but certainly goes into the 20s regardless of when it opens? Is that the best use of our resources, a 33, 34, 35-year-old right-handing first baseman who may be on the decline or that stalwart in the middle of the lineup who's a great team leader? And that's one of the things we're going to have to assess over the next few months. Uh, We don't have to make that decision this offseason since, as I said, he's under control for two more. But he's an interesting case. Avi Garcia is another interesting case. Avi is not the same demographic as as Abreu in that he's 26. And traditionally, players tend to peak around 27, 28. So he's probably entering his prime. Uh, However, he is under control only for two more years as well. So we have to make an assessment, does it make sense to commit whatever tens of millions it will cost to keep Avi uh, Ave Garcia off of free agency? Or do we explore perhaps moving him in exchange for continuing this uh, accumulation of prospects that we were done with players that, quite frankly, were similarly, if not more so, accomplished in Chris Sale
1: and Jose Quintana and even Adam Eaton? That's Rick Kahn, Sox General Manager with our Connor McKnights. More with that interview coming up in just a couple of moments. First, commemorate the Hall of Fame career of White Sox star outfielder Tim Raines by purchasing a limited edition Tim Raines Hall of Fame dual bobblehead. This unique keepsake includes action shots of Tim's likeness as a White Sox player and Expos player. Rock bobbleheads are just $40 each and available while supplies last. Visit whitesox.com slash rock bobble to get yours today. Well, now we present part three, of the finale of Connor's interview with Sox general manager Rick Hahn.
2: There's, there's a connecting line, too, that the White Sox have been able to, to make happen with those kinds of players, too, and I think you probably know where I'm going. The, the ability that you've had to sign Quintana... Eaton sale to contracts that were contracts that were very team friendly uh, and netted a little bit back. Is is that a situation where both with Avi and perhaps with Jose, though, like you said, different buckets. Is, is that a possibility at points? You know, in this off season, in next, can you get? Can you split it both ways? I guess can you ride that fence with uh, with an extension that might let you do both down the line. Conceivably, yes. Uh, You
0: don't traditionally get great value on players signing them two years before free agency. Sure. The the, the deals you alluded to all happened when players were only in the league a year, maybe two years into the league, uh, where they're, understandably, from my standpoint, choosing a lifetime of security with that first contract in exchange for giving up a little bit of back-end upside, perhaps, by giving up a couple years of free agency control when players get closer and closer to that free agent payday, they tend not to be quite as willing to sacrifice some of that upside that's only now two seasons away, or mm-hmm. if you do it a year before free agency, you know, it's only six months of a season away. So in theory, it's possible. It's certainly something that we need to be cognizant of and explore. Uh, at the same time, one of the things that we've been successful at, I feel, over the past 12 months or eight months, however long you want to track this process, is we haven't taken any half measures. We've been pretty committed to what we've been doing. We've been aggressively trying to serve the singular goal of putting ourselves in the position to win multiple championships, to acquire as much talent as we possibly can with our short-term assets and many assets as we can that fit into our long-term plan. Uh, When you have short-term assets still here like Avi and Abreu, you either better turn them into long-term assets via trade or via contract is what it comes down sure. to in the end. That's the decision we're going to have to make. But I, and, but the sort of straddling it thing, I don't know if that in the
2: end is going to be the rush to go. You mentioned that contract like that, an extension like that early, is a lifetime of security. You guys were able to do that with Tim Anderson over the last offseason. Um, Tim obviously had a, a very difficult first four months in many different ways. Since August... He has been absolutely on fire. I believe the errors have come down too. I think it 's two since august first it's The offensive production has been off the charts. multiple hits in eight of ten games over one streak is this the Is this, is this the Tim Anderson that you knew you had both from a baseball standpoint and from a personality standpoint from a character standpoint uh- Yes, on both accounts. But, uh, you know, I think since whenever
0: that Stroman incident took place, I saw something the day before I came over. That's right. Since the Stroman incident, he's got an OPS of like 883 or something like that, which if he maintained that for an entire season as a shortstop, that's remarkable. That yeah. that's all Star Caliber and that's a fantastic player to have. Uh, not saying I expect him to continue to hit three forty or whatever he has since that date throughout the rest of his career. But yes, we we knew he had that type of that type of upside and that sort of talent. From a personal standpoint, we also knew this was the type of person we were dealing with. Right. And in that, is for those of you who don't know, Tim's best friend and godfather of his child was murdered in May uh, back home and I have personally never – Tim has talked about this publicly. I'm not telling any tales. Uh, I have never seen a a player more affected by an off-the-field incident than than Tim was. And he wasn't sleeping. He he was sleepwalking through his days. And you saw it on the field. Uh, He – to his credit, he's talked publicly about the fact he sought out some counseling. He's received help. He's not, you know, 100 percent better psychologically, but he's he's improved, and I think you've seen obviously the performance improve as well. But before we enter into a contract with any of these guys on a long term basis, part is getting to know who they are, and is the money going to change how they approach things? Is the money going to change what they care about? Are they going to feel like they've arrived because they got that first fortune banked? Or are they going to still be hungry? So we certainly knew what we were getting in terms of Tim Anderson, the person, before we made the commitment. And part of what we knew we were getting is someone who is extremely caring about his family, about those close to him. Obviously, we couldn't foresee someone he cared that much about, you know, suffering this tragedy. Uh, but we knew this was the individual we were getting, and the individual we wanted to be part of this next core when we when we signed him up for the next eight seasons. Uh, certainly, we've we've Tim through his sensitivity and his, his caring about his family and his friends is. suffered some hardships this year, but the player you've seen over the last couple months I think is much more similar to what uh, we project seeing going forward.
2: we got a couple minutes left, uh, and you guys traveled all the way down here to see Rick and hang out with us in a space that has hosted – I wrote this down, actually. Uh, You have in this, or we have here at WLS, seen uh, Panic at the Disco, Green Day, Jimmy Eat World. Kevin Bacon has a band. He was in here a little while ago. And uh, I got to tell you, this is way better than any of that Let's stuff. Say, that's so much cooler than that. what it is. Like, that list is awesome. dashboard. Uh, I but would you guys not came down here for <laughs> this, and uh, if you have questions, if you just want to um, pile up in this general aisle here, and if you want to ask a question, you're more than. Nope, I take that back. We have a microphone over there, and if you have a question, you can go stand by Dave. Uh, he's the executive producer of White Sox baseball, and you can pop a question in. Otherwise, uh, we will. And plow through here, uh, <laughs> and I got a question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so going back to the Quintana trade, yes. somehow you guys kept that secret, it didn't leak at all to any of these savvy reporters. How the hell did you do that?
0: I wish I knew the answer to that one because that was awesome. That was so I, I'm not gonna lie to you. That was so satisfying. We, <laughs> we, we 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 rarely call a guy up from Charlotte without it hitting social media before we're willing to put out a press release. Our, our Scott Reifert, our VP of communications, is sitting in the back, and I don't, no disrespect to the job his people do, but it always leaks. Uh, with the Quintana trade, it's funny, actually, because it, it, we got to the point where we were getting ready to call the players. It hadn't leaked yet, so we're within you know, a half hour of being able to release it. And the Cubs had gotten hold of all four of their guys. I still couldn't get a hold of Q. Uh, we had one of the guys in the front office trying to reach him as well. Hey, Rick's going to call. You need to pick up the phone. And I got a text from one of our beat reporters It said – Q to the Cubs, question mark. (laughs) Then I got a text from another reporter saying, Eloy to you guys, question mark. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to swear. I almost did. Uh, I'm like, oh, this is starting to leak. Then Q calls. And so, you know, I've known Quintana since the first day we signed him with the White Sox. and, And, you know, he is just a fantastic individual. And as I alluded to earlier, our scouts, our player development people, our major league staff, all love this guy for what he's meant to us. And losing him hurts. So Q calls, and I explain to him what's going on. And then, you know, you can tell he's emotional. It's a big day for him. And he sort of wants to chat. And he's like, Rick, you know, everything you guys have done for me. And, and like, the phone's starting to buzz. And I'm like, no way I am losing this, Scoop, just because for my love of Q. And I'm like, hey, Jose, I love you. Good luck. I'll see you next week when we play. You guys, I got to go. Hang up. And I text Scott, and they let the thing release. And it actually, we actually still managed to to beat the leak on that. Uh, I think both teams deserve a lot of credit, not just for the fact that we're able to keep it to a small circle and keep it quiet, because uh, obviously something of that magnitude leaking out early leads to a great deal of analysis and second-guessing and could possibly influence that deal coming together if it sees the light of day early. And uh, you know, I know a lo- I I know Theo and his people, and certainly on our side, felt that it was wonderful that both sides were able to put aside any noise or any distraction and do what was a good baseball deal for both sides that made sense for where both teams were in terms of their win cycles. Uh, and I don't know if it had seen the light of day and it had been debated for 48 hours before the deal finally got done, if that still would have been the case. I like to think it would have been, but I liked it this way better. Next then tell Connor so we get the scoop. Conner.
2: Yeah, Connor was texting. We've been like, "Yeah, totally." <laughs> I just go with it. <laughs> Send him an emoji. Just ask that way. Uh, to, to that end, the uh, the Yankees trade also kind of just um, oh, we another
3: okay. We'll go we'll go here instead. Sorry, Connor.
2: No, that's <laughs>
3: please. Uh, thanks. Uh, by the way, this has been the most fun sixty win uh, team to watch uh, probably ever. So good, good work. Here. Thank been you. Very good. Touched on earlier. Very exciting. Um, going forward. Requiring starting pitching um, as the the years go on, this rebuild continues. Is are you looking can you be looking more to the draft or kind of building position players and going free agency for for to kind of flesh out this starting pitching? I mean you got a lot in yeah, the pipeline, obviously. But I don't
0: know the answer to that yet. Simply because we have through this, you know, first phase or however you want to describe it, mm-hmm. accumulated a lot. Like I, I could sit here and tell you we project for 2020 or whatever. These are our three outfielders. And if I'm wrong about any of these three, here are the next, here are the next three behind them, and then there's a few behind them too, all of whom are credible prospects and, and realistically could be part of a championship club if they develop and hit their ceilings. But until we go through this sort of next year, year and a half, I'm not really going to be confident enough to tell you, yeah, that guy's going to very likely hit his ceiling. This guy's not. Sure. But this guy behind him is or this guy behind him isn't, so we have to go out and get somebody else. We know – what we do know is a couple of things. One, they're not all going to hit their ceilings, unfortunately. They're not all going to be the studs that you could sit here today and project them to be, right. unfortunately. My job would be way easier if that were the case. <laughs> the second thing we know is that dallying in the free agent market is going to be the, next, the final stage of this because there's going to be holes somewhere. You may, we may address it via trade. We may find out that we've got seven viable starting pitchers, and we're going to move one of those for the third baseman we lack or whatever. Sure. Uh, or we may decide we're going to need to go out and spend money on that third baseman or whatever position is, is lacking because <laughs> the development didn't quite come the way we wanted. Uh, so I can't tell you today who's going to come from where, but I can tell you we're going to let these guys develop, and they're going to answer it for us, and then we're going to have to be aggressive via trade or free agency to fill in the gaps.
3: Sounds good. As the need uh, presents itself. So,
2: Thanks. Uh, That said, as far as starting pitching goes, uh, you guys have – you made a move this year to pick up Derek Holland. And I would imagine, and I think Derek knew this too, that the idea might have been to move him on to another squad if that's – if he pitched well. It didn't happen, uh, and that's that happens when you do that kind of thing. Is that still an opportunity as as years go on here to pick up whether it's starting pitching or other positions, pieces that you can then kind of move around? Uh, sign and trade's a little course, I guess, but sign and trade's a little course. But that's or flipping is the other it's way to describe it. Maybe a course,
0: even more course. Uh, but that is part of where we're at. Sure, that's and team players know that. Derek Holland. Uh, chose to come to us even knowing where we were as an organization because he wanted to, one, ideally get through the year healthy for the first time in a while, and he felt Herm Schneider could help that, and he wanted to also work with Don Cooper as our pitching coach. So he knew, despite the fact that if things went really well for Derek Holland personally, he was probably going to be in another uniform August 1st. uh, He felt this was the best way to sort of maximize his future. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out. Uh, Certainly until we get to the point where we're actually blocking – prospects that need to be in Chicago, uh, that remains on the table, whether it's in the bullpen like you saw with Anthony, Anthony Schwarzak this year, uh, Miguel Gonzalez was a two-year control guy, but mm-hmm. fit that mold as well, or, or, or Holland as you alluded to. Uh, we're not going to go out and sign a second baseman, we've got a second baseman who needs to play in Moncada, but there are other positions where we, we may well be looking to do that again this offseason.
2: Take another one here from the uh, audience.
1: So. Yeah, um, one of the things uh, I saw this season, there seemed to be a lot of injuries, a lot of players going to the DL, um, Rodon specifically.
2: Is that more of a case that you've got these young players and you're just being really overprotective and making sure that you're really taking the safe route given it's rebuilding year? And do you have concerns going forward with you know the, the, the Rodons, the Nate Jones, Lopez? Because it seems like there's a lot more ob- lat strains and oblique yeah. muscle strains that – first really never hit the radar until it happened to
0: Peavy back three, four years ago. So can you comment on yeah, that? Yeah, a couple different things there are at play. First, the, the Lopez situation showing you that no good D goes unpunished. We had a we had a night game at Dodger Stadium, and Lopez was scheduled to pitch the next night in, in Arlington against the Rangers. So being the good guys that we are, we got him a flight out of LAX at like 4 p.m. so he didn't have to arrive with us at 5 in the morning before his start. Uh, Lopez, when he was at DFW, picked up his bag and felt a grab on the side there. So that's how he got hurt. Uh, next time he can be sleep-deprived and pitch healthy instead. Uh, you, with, the, with the number of DL placements, you are seeing a couple of factors. One, Major League Baseball this year, the collective bargaining agreement reduced the minimum stay from 15 to 10 days. When you're talking about a starting pitcher and you might have an off day in there, you're kind of talking about one start and we're not going to screw around when you can only when a guy only has to miss a start. We're not going to mess around if there's any question as to his health, especially with a young player like Lopez. Lopez probably could have made his next start instead of going on the DL, but, going again, we're not going to mess around with that, which goes to the larger issue when you're dealing with uh, uh, Rodon or any of these guys. Uh, Given where we are as a, as a club right now, we're not going to just shoot a guy up and send him back out there and hope that you know we win an extra game or two over the course of the final three, four weeks of the season. Instead, as is the case of Carlos, let's set him down, explore whatever we need to explore to try to get him right for the long term as opposed to taking any short-term risks. <laughs>
1: And Steve Cashel back with you on White Sox Weekly here on WLS AM 890. Sox Fest 2018 returns January 26th through January 28th at the Hilton Chicago. You'll score an autograph or photo with your favorite players, coaches, and White Sox greats. Plus, you can play games, win prizes, and shop for White Sox gear. It'll be a weekend of White Sox baseball that you won't want to miss. Hotel packages are available now. Visit WhiteSox.com slash SoxFest for tickets and more information. Well, you know, a gentleman named Bill Kishadis has recently authored a book trying to help former White Sox slugger Dick Allen get into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And Connor McKnight visited with Bill a couple of weeks ago, and let's listen in.
2: Bill, thanks so much for coming on. Really looking forward to talking about Dick Allen.
1: Thanks for having me,
4: Connor. I I really do appreciate it. And Dick Allen, right now, is a very hot topic of conversation because, as listeners might know, uh, he was supposed to be on the ballot uh, for Hall of Fame consideration by the Veterans Committee this December. Mm -hmm. But uh, last summer, the Hall of Fame announced that they were breaking that committee, the Golden Era Committee, into two groups. And unofficially, We have heard that Dick's name is not on the ballot for this December, and his candidacy will be pushed to December of 2020, which those of us who are big Dick Allen fans and uh, have uh, established a campaign to get him in the Hall of Fame are, of course, very concerned about.
2: I want to get into the Hall of Fame stuff in a bit here, Bill, because it is fairly interesting. We've seen you know, campaigns kind of rise around players over the last handful of years in, in kind of a different way, um, whether it's just a, a general campaign or, or works like uh, a bunch of writers getting together and, and going for Burt Blylevin or even just this last year, Tim Raines. But first, what, what drew you to write the book on Dick Allen?
4: I wrote my initial book on Dick Allen was published by Penn State Press in 2004 and it was titled September Swoon The nine, uh, Richie Allen The 1964 Phillies and Racial Integration and that book tried to address well did address the racial turmoil that was going on in the city of Philadelphia at the time uh, Dick then known as Richie by the Uh, sportscasters and and the journalists in Philadelphia. Uh, The racial turmoil that surrounded uh, the emergence of of his superstardom. Um, He had a very, very uh, tremendously harsh uh, coming of age in Philadelphia Mm. in the 1960s, and it revolved around an incident with a white veteran by the name of frank thomas um they came to to blows thomas took a bat and cracked it over dick's back and that was the beginning of uh dick's problems because uh thomas was a very popular white player in a city that was segregated and uh dick was not allowed to tell his side of the story and his side of the story was that uh, he had stood up for other black players when Thomas would ridicule them. So uh, Thomas went on a local radio station and excoriated Allen. And after that, there was no peace. And I might add that the Philadelphia press and the fans were schizophrenic in their treatment of Dick. Interesting. They would boo him. They'd call him the N-word. Uh, they throw things at him—batteries, coins, bottles. So he took to wearing a batting helmet, and he, whenever he played the outfield, which gave him the name Crash. Um, and you know, then he'd come in, come up to the plate, he'd hit a home run. They give him a standing ovation. So this I started following baseball in 64 and I had memories of this as a six-year-old kid and and this was just astonishing to me and I adopted uh, Dick as a hero initially more out of fascination and and sympathy than for his extravagant home run hitting Um, but Dick put up with this stuff. and. I wanted to make clear that at a time when free agency did not exist, mm. he had no recourse except to force a trade because the Carpenter family would not get rid of him. They was, they, he wasn't their franchise player. So what did he do? He showed up late to games or not at all. He spoke his mind, all in an attempt to get traded out of Philadelphia. Now, once that was done – He was fine, and I think it's unconscionable that a writer like Bill James has come out and said, quote-unquote, Dick Allen blew apart every team that he ever played on by manipulating racism. That is is untrue. Hmm. In Philly, he was a victim of racism. Wherever he went after that, Uh, And even in Philadelphia, while he was a victim of racism, he was a good teammate. He was a phenomenal player that carried uh, the club at at many points. And we know in Chicago, he saved that organization because the White Sox were floundering financially. And there was talk of having them move out of the Windy City. And he saved the White Sox franchise. Uh, So... For James to make that statement, and a lot of writers fell into line behind that, that's why Dick never got into the Hall of Fame when he was on the writer's ballot, uh, I think is unconscionable.
2: We're talking with Bill Kishadis, the author of Dick Allen, The Life and Times of a Baseball Immortal. Let's talk a bit about then 1970, 71, and then 72, the year that saw Dick go to St. Louis, then L.A., and then the White Sox, or those three years, and then win that MVP award in 1972, his first year with the White Sox. That movement, the, the changing of teams, you know, baseball had just started to see that. Dick obviously was a, a giant star in the game at that point leading up to his, his MVP award. What led him to land with the White Sox?
4: Well, let, let me take a step back because those are the years that I really do want to address. Your initial question was why did I write this second book? Uh, September Swoon ended in 1970 with Dick's trade to St. Louis. So I had enough audio tape of Dick uh, when I, I wrote that initial book that I knew I could do another book, a complete biography if I wanted to. And I felt that now was the time because of what's going on with his Hall of Fame candidacy. So I wanted to tell the rest of the story. But I also wanted to give pictures because I think many readers are drawn in by uh, the phenomenal images of his career, which also tell the story. I mean, it's one thing to talk about discrimination and write about it. It's another thing to show it. Um, It's also another thing to talk about his powerful swing and, and the way fans responded to him. And it's another thing to show it. So I think the 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 book that I, I just came out with, it's a illustrated biography, and that's so important to understand Dick's particular set of circumstances. Mm. Um, now, in 1970, Dick was unwittingly part of a trade that went down in baseball history that paved the way for free agency. He was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals for Kurt Flood, who was the center fielder of the St. Louis Cardinals at that time. And there were a couple other players involved in it. Tim McCarver came over to Philadelphia from the Cardinals. I think um, Dick Selma might have been part, of or Joe Horner was part of that trade. Kurt Flood saw how Allen was being treated in Philadelphia, and he did not want to go. He didn't want to put up with the same stuff that Allen put up with. So that's what really was the initial domino that that started all the others falling. Um, So Dick came to St. Louis with a bad rep, and that rep was he's a troublemaker, hold on to him for one year to help your team win a pennant and then get rid of him, which is what was the rep he also had when he went to Los Angeles. But the real reason the Cardinals traded Dick was because there was no place to play younger players uh, who were coming up in the system uh, without shuffling the entire lineup. And that made Dick expendable. The Dodgers uh, traded him away because it was a down year and they thought he was done where he was averaging 30 homers. I think he had maybe low twenties, mid twenties in 19, um seventy uh, one so Dick was talking about retiring, that he didn't want any more of baseball, and he certainly didn't care about the money as he said, Well, I grew up poor. You know once right. you're poor, you know how to live poor. But his mother, era Allen, who was the strongest influence in his life, said, "Look, you were given certain gifts by God' And not to exercise them is 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 a sin, pretty much. And uh, Chuck Tanner was a close friend of the Allen family. He grew up uh, in nearby Newcastle, not far away from Wampum, which was Dick's hometown. And uh, together, uh, Tanner and Era Allen convinced Dick to to come to Chicago, and he did. And Chicago made him feel beloved. Uh, He was very welcome there. Here's a guy who ran away from fans in Philadelphia. He gets a TV show in Chicago. Uh, He would never go out uh, on the town in Philadelphia, never go to restaurants, uh, never go out uh, in public. He felt comfortable going out in public all the time. In Chicago so Chicago really really embraced him and after that 72 season uh, when he won that uh, MVP he also won the um, AL uh, home run title uh, it was home it was home for him and he loved his three years there.
2: Do you think Bill that he and, and the rest of those that 72 White Sox teams those early 70s White Sox teams do you think they knew and and Dick specifically that they were doing for the franchise what they were doing.
4: It was pretty clear to the assistant general manager, Roland Heeman, who's repeatedly said that Dick saved the Chicago White Sox. It was very clear to him. He said it at the time, uh, and, and he's he said it ever since. I interviewed uh, Rich Gossage, Goose Gossage, and Bill Melton. Gossage was a rookie, Melton was established. Mm. I think he was the AL home leader, uh, home run leader. I think it was either 70 or 71 before Dick came in. Awesome power hitter until he had that uh, herniated disc in his back. Um, and both of them, you talk to the mates, they, they say the players knew it. You know, when when Dick showed up. He was the star power that they needed to make a run, and they knew they knew the franchise was in trouble, uh, and there you know no one could hold a candle uh, to Dick in his record. So, as as uh, Goose uh, said it, we just uh, got on Dick's back and rode him like a Clydesdale. <laughs> So everybody, everybody fell into line. And, and Dick is not this kind of rah-rah guy. He's he's quiet. He leads by example and the quiet word of encouragement. And both uh, Bill Melton and Goose Gossage have said that uh, he in, in, endeared themselves uh, uh, to them just by, you know, that – that uh occasional word of encouragement and and confidence. And there's a real funny story, at least I think it's funny, um, about Dick's loyalty to his friends. Harry Carey, he used to have uh he used to have his broadcast, Wednesday afternoon broadcast out there in center field mm-hmm. um and he'd sit out there with a beer in one hand and a fishnet a uh, big fishnet in the other to catch home run balls, whatever. And Kerry had been especially uh, critical of Bill Melton, uh, who came back and was playing hurt uh, with this herniated disc, uh, and he was just on him. It seemed like, you know, every other day. And Dick was very close to Bill Melton, and he did not appreciate that. Uh so after one particularly uh, critical uh, uh, analysis that um, that Harry Carey did of Bill Melton uh, on air, Dick went up to Bill the next day and says, I'll get him for you. I'll get him for you. I'll get him for you. <laughs> and Melton figures out, Dick, don't get into a fight. You know, th- 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 this isn't worth it. And he said, no, no, no. So he, he comes up, and I forget who the game was against, but he comes up late in the game. The, the the Sox are down by a run or two, and he gets a fastball, and he gets it slightly outside. Well, that ball and Dick Allen's home runs would take off like it was a line drive, but they kept on rising, and even the outfielders were you know, confounded by this because a ball they thought was catchable just kept on rising. So that ball's rising, he's heading right in the center field, headed right for Harry Carey's head, <laughs> and he keeps on rising, Harry Carey figures, well, that ball's not going to come near me, right? All of a sudden, the fishnet goes flying out of one hand, the beer out of the other, and he's scurrying for it, and the ball hits the seat where he was sitting, wow. and you know, Allen just, you know, slightly with his head down, circles the bases, goes back in the dugout, and he says, Belton Bill, Bill Toll might get him for you. <laughs> so, you know, he, was that, he was that kind of guy. And many of these White Sox players said, if he wanted to, he could hit a home run at will. But he often in games, he would set up the pitcher, he'd find out what their whole repertoire of pitches were. And, you know, he'd go and hit him in the later innings when the Sox needed him. Uh, so he he really he was and is a, somewhat of a folk hero in Chicago.
2: So, Bill, reputation aside, let's just take a look at the numbers here. The old baseball reference page has a lot of black ink for Dick Allen from 1964 all the way to 1974. Uh, Two years with the Phillies, he he came back to Philly, but wasn't quite uh, the Dick Allen that 1964 to 1974 was. What are the cases uh, for Dick considering the length of his career, uh, the injuries that did happen to him, the cases for him for the Hall of Fame?
4: Okay, just real quickly, I want to touch on why he was not the power hitter in Philadelphia the second time around. Sure. Not many people know in 74 that he ruptured – that Achilles tendon right. that he that he he torqued with when he hit. Now, a ruptured or torn Achilles tendon is the death knell for a power hitter. He he in his mind he was going to retire. He was talked out of retirement by the Phillies, specifically Mike Schmidt and Dave Cash. Mm. Schmidt needed protection in the lineup. He knew with Allen's experience he could do it. So they talked him out of retirement. Dick really did not want to come back until he was convinced that he could be of some help. Uh, So, yes, those last actually uh, three years, it was 75, 76. He finished up his career with Oakland, only played, I think, a third, maybe half the season. Now, you ask, what is his case for the Hall of Fame? He's got 15 years, 15 years. Okay. and and that's more than a decade uh, of a career he of of that decade eight of those years were really quality years if not more all right career totals uh 292 batting average 351 home runs and 1000 and 19, 119 RBIs. Now, this was in an era when it was the pitcher's game, not a hitter's game. Yeah. The pitchers dominated. And mind you, this was also when hitters were not on steroids. OK, now I find the biggest irony that Bill James, who was probably the most vocal critic of Dick Allen, is also the inventor of Sabermetrics. And what James has done, whether he knows it or not, is has just reinforced Allen's candidacy. There is a stat called OPS plus. Mm-hmm. That is a combination of on base and slugging percentage adjusted, adjusted meaning to the dynamics of the ballpark he played in and so forth. Well, if you look at the decade, 64 to 74, okay? which actually th- 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 those are 10 years, and those were all quality years. For my, before I said eight years or more, it's 10 years. They were all quality years for Dick. His OPS plus for those 10 years is 165. For his career, it's 156, which ranks him 19th of all time, 19th mm. of all time. You're talking about in the same party of Ruth, Garrett, Fox, Simmons, people like that. All right. There's another stat, and that is called offensive war, wins above replacement, meaning how many more games would a team have won if the or how many teams would a team not have won or games would a team not have won if this particular player was replaced by an average player. Right. And Dick's offensive war is 69.9. That's his career offensive war, 69.9, which means single-handedly his bat was responsible for winning his teams a total of 70 games, all right, which puts him in the top 60. Now, (laughs) you know, you tell me, you tell me. With numbers that are better than many of the other power hitters he played with at that period of time, does this man not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame,
2: Bill? I am uh, I am the proverbial choir in this equation, and I am absolutely for it. And uh, we'll have to see, I suppose, in short a afford- short order whether Dick Allen gets into the Hall of Fame. But I know he'll be right there behind him the whole way. Yep. Well, me too, and- Bill. Thanks so much for hopping on the show. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is Dick Allen. The Life and Times of a Baseball Immortal by Bill Kishadis. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Connor.
1: And welcome back, everybody. White Sox Weekly here on WLSAM 890. I'm Steve Cashel. Have you ever dreamed of taking BP like the pros? Join the White Sox Youth Academy on Sunday, October 1st, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. at their annual On-Field Fun Fest. Kids ages 5 to 18 can take live batting practice, warm-up in the bullpen, and much more. Now, space is limited, so visit BullSoxAcademy.com slash FunFest to register today. Well, Connor McKnight recently spent a little time uh, with future White Sox pitcher Michael Kopech. uh, We're visiting, and let's uh, get more with Connor.
2: So let's talk a little about your season in both AA and AAA. I think, you know, in talking with the media just a couple of minutes ago here in the dugout, your eyes kind of lit up a little bit when you mentioned that you worked a full innings load, that you had a full season. That seemed to be a really big not only point of pride, but a really goal for you coming into this year. Why is that, and how
3: much of a sense of accomplishment do you feel for that? Uh, I mean, I feel awesome about it. And to me, I think it was such a big goal because it wasn't only a goal for me. It felt like a group goal. It felt like an organization goal. Everybody wanted to see me get that full innings load, and I finally got it. And you know, I finished healthy. I didn't finish with much fatigue. And so just the fact that I was able to reach that milestone and get ready for next year was, I think, coming from the organization a very important part and for me a very important part considering I threw more this year than I did the last two seasons combined. It almost feels like you could set I mean
2: let's not set the results aside because you had a hell of a season but if you did set them aside that's a
3: a pretty noble goal especially from where you're at and in your development track as it is right now. Right and I I think you know I, I like I said I just think that that really set me up for what whatever's to come next year. And the fact that I was able to go out there and, you know, at the most take seven days between starts, I think that was great for me. Just kind of get in a routine, work the season a little bit, and go the whole year without fatigue. That was – I I couldn't be more grateful for that. Let's talk a little bit
2: about, you know, working through AA. You were named the AA pitcher of the year. Congrats on that. Thank you. It's an honor in and of itself. But I know and you know that when you're pitching that well down there in AA, you're looking at AAA as the next step. How do you keep yourself focused? How do your teammates, how do your coaches help keep you focused when you know that there's more out there to go get?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, I would talk to other guys and our staff down there, and we all kind of would – We're going through the same thing. We're thinking about a promotion. We're thinking about, you know, the next start. And you're trying to balance out what's most important to focus on at the time. And it almost got to the point where I had to forget about being promoted at all. I had to think that this is where I'm going to finish the year. This is what I'm going to do. All I'm going to do is go out there and compete my best my next start. And so when I got into that mindset and was able to just go start by start, I really think that was what kind of locked me in for the rest of the year. And... It, you know, it ended up getting a promotion out of it anyway. So I think that was really what helped. And talking to those guys that had been down there and are trying to go through the same thing, they were, they were kind of in the same mindset. It kind of teaches that once you push away the big stuff, the small stuff comes into focus. Yeah. The big stuff happens on its own. Right. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta set your sights on something very specific. And when your goal is very broad, it's hard to do that. So. You know, like I said, once I was able to focus start by start, I think it just kind of locked me in that much more.
2: Talking about specific starts, you know, down in the minors, I know a lot of our fans, you know, are, are very interested in minor league baseball right now with you and, and Eloy and, and the rest of the crop the White Sox have. But as as we try and teach them, and this is something we've trying to do on the show, how do we watch minor league baseball? What should we look for? Do you go into starts at times with like a task at hand, like, hey Michael, let's throw 35 changeups tonight, or let's make sure that we, you know, put that slider on the outer half, and and how do you go ahead and adjust once maybe you don't have that slider tonight, yeah. or maybe that
3: fastball is just not going into the lefties the way you want it to, yeah. and you got to kind of change things that night. You know, it, it may not always be that specific, but you're right for the most part. That's how pretty much those games go. I, I know for me, the last couple months of the year, I was, you know, working on getting ahead. Early in counts and really just trying to, you know, create an out earlier than later. And for me, that would be, you know, throwing a first pitch strike. And so my first pitch fastball might be ninety four, ninety five, and then I throw a 02 fastball 98 99 hundred, whatever the case may be. And so you would notice a difference in how I was pitching and when I would, when I would try to use an out pitch, when I would rear back a little bit, and you know. Ironic you say that. I lost my slider in my last couple starts. There, I lost the feel for it, rather. Sure. And so I, I would try to. You know, mix my pitches a little better to where I was able to still compete in the game and get guys with a different pitch. And you know, That's kind of what minor leagues is about, is development. But once you get to AAA, you're getting a little bit of development and you're getting a lot of guys that already have a cup of coffee. So it's it's fun to kind of get a
2: mix there. You, you sound like you've kind of taken a page out of the Don Cooper conversation, our every <laughs> pregame show that we do here on the station. He talks about getting outs early, he talks about getting that first pitch strike over. How much of, of his philosophy and his, you know, because I, I saw you and Coop work a lot in spring training. Yeah. He loved working with you. How much do you hear from
3: him, or just kind of hear his lessons throughout a minor league season? Yeah, you know, I mean, unfortunately, this season we didn't have a chance to, you know, talk one on one a lot. But it was, it'd be ironic how often his, uh, how often his. Talks came into effect during sure. season. There would be, you know, it'd be mid-June, and he would talk about painting a low and away fastball after you, you know, maybe you went hard in it or hard up in, it. <laughs> and then you apply that directly to a start on June 14th that you talked about in February. So that's right.
2: Oftentimes, Michael, uh, teammates can apply as much pressure as anybody else. We're sitting here, and Avi Garcia and Yomer Sanchez have joined us, gentlemen. Uh, you faced this guy in spring training yet have you, have you had to swing against him he got a good English my friend <laughs> uh, that is that's at least the fifth time Elmer has just kind of stood over an interview like this I mean you got you got to enjoy the fact that yeah. these guys in major league uniforms are ready for you to be here and it, it kind of feels like
3: you're ready for this too yeah I'm really excited about it I, I've had a chance you know in big league camp to to play alongside a lot of these guys. And if not in big league camp, I had a chance to play with a lot of these guys in uh, you know, Birmingham, Charlotte, whatever the case may be. And seeing them here and kind of everything that's kind of meshing together this year in the clubhouse, it's a lot of fun to watch. and I'm excited to see it continue to do so next year.
2: All right, so take me to the end of the AA season for you. You're right there toward it. You know, a promotion has just come. How did you get the news you were going up to AAA? And what was your, you know, because each each promotion I mean that's still a task it's an assignment right and it's yeah. a job to get done I think it was three starts at triple a what was different about that level from double a and I know you said you lost the slider a little bit some or the feel for it some how did you go ahead and handle
3: that at a, at a new and higher and more difficult level yeah I mean in Birmingham I, I've gotten into a rhythm and a groove almost as you can say to where I just felt like I was almost unhittable and it, it wasn't anything special I was doing. I wasn't doing anything different. I was just throwing more strikes, and it, I realized that, I mean, as simple as it sounds, filling up a zone is going to put the pressure on the hitter versus the pitcher. When I was able to do that, it just felt like I was in control of the whole game. What does that feel like? <laughs> uh.
2: I don't really know how to. No, put it please in describe words. it. Describe it to a man who was a terrible high school pitcher. <laughs> please, tell me what does it feel like to be in control like that. Uh, I'll say I'll say it feels relieving
3: because okay. the the whole year you're out there, you're competing, you're competing, you're competing, and trying to figure out what it is to click for everything to feel right. Right. And once you find that one thing that made everything feel the way you wanted to, you feel almost relieved and not not necessarily excited or dominant or cocky or anything like that you you feel like you just did what you've been working on your whole life and that's not even to feel a sense of accomplishment in AAA, major leagues, whatever the case may be. That's just double A baseball. But I, I can't imagine how it would feel to do that here. I feel like th- that's, that's got to
2: be a much better way to go up there than, than when
3: I did when I did terror.
2: It that, well, that was the only emotion I think I remember feeling when I was out there. It was just terror. Uh, well, congratulations Thank on you. one hell of a season. Thank and you. it'll be AAA, so the sights are there. Uh, the season for you. Shut it down for just a little bit, get right back up, uh, pitch a little. What is your typical offseason kind of plan?
3: Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a couple weeks off, kind of relax for a little bit, let the body recover. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, towards the end of this month, I'm going to jump in there and hit the weight room like I usually do. Uh, I probably won't pick up a ball again after tonight, throwing out the first pitch <laughs> until December. Or so so uh, I'm going to wait a little while to start the whole throwing program, but I'm going to get in the weight room here fairly soon after I take a little bit of rest. Right. You
2: deserve it. Thanks, Michael. We appreciate sitting down.
1: Appreciate it. Connor McKnight with White Sox pitcher Michael Kopech, one of our guys for the future. Great stuff. Have you ever dreamed of taking BP like the pros? Join the White Sox Youth Academy Sunday, October 1st from 1 to 3 at their annual on-field fun Fest. Kids ages 5 to 18 can take live batting practice, warm up in the bullpen, and much more. Space is limited. Visit BullSoxAcademy.com slash FunFest to register today and ever dream of being a White Sox player It's your chance to attend the 2018 Chicago White Sox Fantasy Camp at Camelback Ranch, Glendale, January 14th to 20th to be treated like a pro. For more information or to reserve your roster spot, you can call this number, 623-302-5078, or simply sign up at whitesox.com. That's all the time we have for this edition of White Sox Weekly. Our executive producer is Dave Zaslowski, Technical Director Don Kleppen. I'm Steve Cashel. White Sox pregame show is up next. we got the White Sox and the Kansas City Royals, second of a three-game set here live from Guaranteed Rate Field. Stay with us, folks. Thanks for listening to WLS AM 890.
0: And listening to White Sox Weekly, the official weekly talk show covering all things White Sox
4: baseball. Listen every week for White Sox Weekly on WLS AM 890, the proud home for White Sox baseball.